and welcome to Energy Oracles from PE Live. I'm Paul Hicking, Editor-in-Chief of Petroleum Economist, and I'm joined by Dave Ernsberger, Head of Market Reporting and Trading Solutions at S&P Global Commodity Insights, well known for the Platts Commodity Benchmarks. Hi Dave, and thanks for being here today. So Dave, US flows to Europe have been a huge development in recent years, and now Russia to India has been another scene of record flows. How adaptable is the oil market been to these changes in volumes and quality, given the impact on yields and prices and product flows? What's your take? Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it, and they're both equally valid. So on the one hand, the global oil market has been astonishingly resilient and adaptable to pretty epic changes that have been inserted into the DNA of the way the market flows. So to your point, Russian crude oil that used to go to Northwest Europe now goes, for lack of a better word, seamlessly to India, although there's plenty of logistics involved in that, don't get me wrong. And crude oil that used to go to Asia now goes to Europe from the US. We've seen some diversions there. So on one side of the discussion, the oil market has been amazingly adaptable. And you see that point of view reflected in the fact that the headline price for crude oil is $85 a barrel, heading towards 90 as we meet here on APEC this week, because of, frankly, the efforts to curtail supply we see from OPEC Plus and Russia and others, because you know the market has balanced itself so well, right? So that's one side of the discussion. Now, on the other side of the discussion, we are seeing stresses and strains and dislocations in the marketplace, because some of the reworking that needs to be done, some of the repiping that needs to be done to make those things happen are a little bit painful, are a little bit difficult. And you know, one example of the stresses and strains would be that you know, the global arbitrage in oil is driven by, among other things, the Brent Dubai spread, which has been at historically low levels, which means that you know, Brent is relatively cheap compared to Dubai. And yet, even with that dynamic in place, we don't see Asia buying a lot more US crude oil. So we see, you know, limits in place around how much the oil can truly flow based on pricing and arbitrage economics. Because underneath all of that, there's a flotilla of advanced refineries that are built in Asia that are built to handle medium sour crude. And there's a limit to how much U.S. crude they can take. So there's two perspectives. One, it's been an amazing adaptation. Two, it stresses and strains. You know, right now I would side with it's been an amazing adaptation, but I would qualify it heavily and say there's evidence that there's pain points out there. Certainly when you think about when you do readjust flows, there is that kind of extra cost involved in the shipping, the time that it takes as well to re- reallocate those flows as well. On that note, what other changes have you seen in oil flows that have been significant that may have gone a bit under the radar, less talked about than some of these key flows? Yeah, I think about? for sure people tend to overlook the increased flows of crude oil to Latin America. That's getting lost in the noise here. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what does it mean that Guyana, for example, is building platform after platform and is expanding its production pretty significantly. That's new oil that's coming to market that's contributing to, frankly, what this year has been one of the biggest increases in non-OPEC production in recent history. And yet the flows of Latin oil are finding their place in the market, but a little bit being overlooked right now. And I think that story will become more important in 2024 and 2025. But one thing I would encourage people to look at is the, the flow of crude oil out of Latin America and where it's going to, because that's going to be, as we head into the next few years, I think a more and more important part of the story. And it's been lost a little bit, I think, because of the bigger changes in the ecosystem overall. And then, of course, there's the other thing that gets overlooked a little bit, although it is more talked about, which is how are oil flows working between China, Japan, South Korea, what's happening up in East Asia? There's a lot of smoke and mirrors around where that oil goes, how that oil works. We've been talking about here at APEC this week as well. And so I think that there's a little more forensic work that does need to be done around, well, what's actually happening with imports of crude oil 
into East Asia and particularly into China, because that's something we all need to understand better if we're going to get our, really get our hands around where the market will go from here. Just to follow up on that question, where is Latam crew going? I guess Brazil and Guyana are two of the big talking points. Yeah. Oh, where is it going? What sort of quality is that? And- a lot of it will be competing with light, sweet crews coming out of the US, for example, particularly the Guyanese type stuff. So it has a pretty good blend when you put it through refineries. And a lot of it is finding a home at the moment in European markets and even in North America at points. But the typical flow there would be into Northwest Europe, into the Mediterranean. So that'll be interesting to think about from a grant pricing perspective and a European refining economic perspective, I would say, in the months to come. Certainly, it's a long way to go as well. And yeah. How do you see this other issue has been talked about a lot in the market by Saudi Arabia, especially about this potential disconnect between the physical oil market and the financial oil market, the financial market. What's your take, seeing as you look at the physical market a lot, Platts? How do you see the relationship between the two? So this gets talked about a lot. And it's been talked about a lot this year, maybe more even than usual. And I have a very clear point of view, which is that the physical markets and the financial markets are different markets. They're different by design. They're different in the way that they operate. They have different participants acting within them. Sometimes there's overlaps, by the way. Some companies do physical and paper trading, of course. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? So I think that the idea that there's a disconnect between financial and physical markets Well, of course, because there are different markets that do different things. Now, ultimately, oil futures and derivatives markets are designed to be, ultimately, as the name suggests, derivative in their value of what's going on in the physical market. So at some point, there needs to be convergence between the futures market and the physical market. And we do see that happening often enough at the end of every month, for example, when the futures contracts expire, to suggest that the connections and the convergences are still happening. But on any given day, in any given week, at any given moment in time, the futures price is different for oil than the physical price is for oil. That's just a fact. And if you want to know the value of physical oil, you need to look at physical oil benchmarks. If you want to know the value of futures contracts, look at futures benchmarks. And they both serve an important role in the marketplace. That's fair enough. And to take that comment a bit further, how do you see oil trading changing, evolving? What's the future hold for it? Given that we've talked about a little bit about the physical and the financial market, about the changes we've seen under sanctions, under changes through energy trade, energy transition and sustainability. What is the future for energy trading and oil trading in particular? Well, I think one thing we can say with a lot of confidence is that the future is bright and important for trading in physical and financial oil markets. You know, it's very clear under the scenarios that we look at, that we hear talked about in the market, that until 2040, 2050, hydrocarbons will play an important part in the global energy supply, along with renewables, along with alternative forms of energy. And that means that the long-term future for these markets is important, actually both for renewable and new forms of energy and for the core energy markets like oil. So these are important markets that will continue to trade and be part of our general global economy for many decades to come. In terms of how they're shaped, well, that's an interesting question because you know every year and every couple of years, there are new things happening out there in the global space that challenge the order. You know, And I think this year in 2023 and heading into 2024, the discussion is increasingly around the BRIC nations and what's going on with the BRICs, which of course used to be Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And now it's a group of at least 10, maybe 15 countries who have signed into BRICs, not just being an acronym for four countries, but maybe a movement into a multipolar world where there are many different centers of activity and many different versions of economic activity, for lack of a better phrase. And within that, there could be another push for alternative ways of trading oil and oil futures. And we may see the rise of 
the de-dollarized oil market. We may see the rise of energy and oil trading and alternative regulatory environments. Those are all things that are maybe to come in the next five or 10 years, and they'll need to be talked about. Certainly, it's who would have predicted what we've seen in the past few years with COVID and Russia. So for sure. So who knows how this... We live in a time of monumental change and nothing's off the table with the way these markets work. And on that note, it's roll it back into the sort of granular in a sense, which is the North Sea, which has been the home of Dr. Brent and the North Sea oil. How do you see that the North Sea's role in the oil market going forward. It's something that looks like it's something that's in pretty much in decline, its role, but at the same time, it's still playing a key role for as a hub in many other ways. What's your take on that? Well, the North Sea is a vibrant, hyperactive market for light, sweet crude oil in the sense that it has many market participants. It's the locus where buyers and sellers come together for all kinds of arbitrage barrels that meet the spec. So in the past three years, the market's gone through a pretty significant self-evaluation, a bit of introspection to ask itself the question, is Brent a European oil benchmark or is Brent a global crude oil benchmark? And the answer unequivocally has been from everybody we've talked to, and this is certainly our view at Platts, is that Brent is a global crude oil benchmark. So U.S. arbitrage barrels have been coming into Europe in increasing volume since 2016, and now it's uh, anywhere from a million to a million and a half barrels a day of light sweet crude oil supply in Northwest Europe, in the North Sea itself, right? So with Midland coming in, the Brent benchmark is more active than it's ever been. There's more oil being delivered, at least in recent history, against the physical trading of data Brent, against the futures contracts themselves. So by opening up to the reality that the light sweet crude market in the North Sea includes U.S. barrels... The benchmark activity in Brent is now set to be the global indicator for the value of oil for many years to come. And who's to say what's to come next? But what Brent has proven once again is that it's adaptable and flexible enough to reflect the reality of how that market's trading. And it isn't being constrained by nationalist discussion. It isn't being constrained by artificial constructs. It's reflecting the reality of trading. And ultimately, that's what every benchmark needs to do. I think that's an interesting point because that is what the globalized world we live in how the globalized world has changed you know yeah. when the u.s opened its exports up again u.s exports up it changed that global scenario and like you said now that u.s is crude is now in the data brand benchmark that opens the door to a myriad of possibilities oh, i think that's right paul i mean it's counterfactual that in a world of frankly deglobalization that the world's most important crude benchmark has become more globalized. That's counterfactual in the sense the world's going one way, the benchmark's going the other. And I'd rather be on the side of globalization than the other side of that discussion. Yeah, certainly there's often a tension exists between always, has always existed between the local and the globalized world we live in. So on the other side of the coin, I'd like to ask you about US production, US shale, given that it's yeah. all these flows from US are going now to Europe. A lot of discussion around shale's growth scenario. How much of it now is, do you see the boom is over, but there's probably going to be some growth for the next foreseeable future? And what are the drivers behind that? The remarkable thing about US tight oil production, shale oil production, is that it continues to increase even as the rig count goes down, which is a trend that's been in place for three years now, actually, right? But the amazing efficiency and technological enhancements going on around what was already a technological revolution is pretty stunning. Now, the research team at Commodity Insights, of which Platts is a part, currently estimate U.S. production to be in total around 13 million barrels a day and likely hitting something closer to 15 or 16 million barrels a day four years from now, which is to say we think U.S. production will continue to grow. Gulf of Mexico production is holding pretty steady in all of that, so most of that is shale oil coming out of the Permian. 
that's still pretty remarkable, that's pretty strong. Lots yeah. more oil to come. Yeah, a lot of life to be crude as well. I'd like to move across to how does the oil market view itself these days? We've had a lot of discussions around energy security, mm-hmm. energy transition, never the twenty shirt meets. What's your view on that? Well, I think there's been a pretty rapid reevaluation of how the market sees itself and frankly, how the rest of the world sees the market. I think coming out of the pandemic, the world was pretty strongly of the opinion that oil was part of its past, not part of its future. And any investment in hydrocarbons was a bad thing. Um, That was certainly the general political discussion and the general social discussion. And I think we're in a more balanced place now where, as we talked about even in the podcast today, it is extremely likely that hydrocarbons will be part of the energy mix up until 2050 to the tune of about 50 to 60 percent of what we consume in energy, which means investments needs to carry on and the world needs to be assured of supply. And of course, the price shocks of 2022, the hyperinflation that followed in the global economy or certainly in the OECD economies demonstrated how important it was to keep the world well supplied, even as we manage transition into new fuels. And I think that probably the biggest and most important thing that's come out of the market in the last 18 months is this concept of carbon intensity. If we're going to be smarter about the kind of hydrocarbons that we consume, if the market is going to ultimately price and reward hydrocarbon sources that are more energy efficient, that are less carbon intensive, then we need to be measuring the intensity and the carbon intensity of these different sources of supply. The markets embrace that concept. We now assess the carbon intensity of you know 80 to 90 crews produced around the world. And it's allowing people to differentiate, just like between light and heavy crude and sweet and sour crude, increasingly having the ability to distinguish between high intensity and low intensity crude as well. It's probably one of the light bulb moments that have gone off in the mind of the market that helps people adjust to a reality where we're transitioning to a cleaner future, but the pathway isn't a one-step move, right? So the ability to understand and try and consume lower intensity hydrocarbon is a big deal. Certainly, it almost feels like there's been a reality check that oil and fossil fuels are going to be a huge part of the market. How can we become cleaner even with that reality? And that seems to be with carbon intensity, carbon capture and storage. Some of these views seem to have taken a bit more traction now, a bit more seriously potentially than it was. It's probably not a fully developed discussion, but it's trending into a better understood place, I would say, generally. Yeah, exactly. Still early days in a sense. What's your view on demand for oil and the peak oil discussion from the researcher at SP Global mm-hmm. Commodity Insights? We've had a lot of discussion today about Asia and playing a lead role, a leadership role. Obviously, from some of your team there, it's, it's how much Asia is going to, for the next decade, is going to take up a huge mm-hmm. part of the growth of GDP. And by consequence, probably a big share of oil and gas demand as well as a share of that. But also there's Coal has been a big part of the equation for China and India and Indonesia, for example. How do you see the demand side of this equation in particular and Asia is at the heart of that? So if we just look at oil, this is an interesting time to have this conversation because in August of 2023, global oil demand hit its highest level ever. So we just consume more oil as a global population than we've ever consumed before, just in the last month of this year. And in fact, we don't think that demand for oil is going to peak until sometime in early to mid 2030s. So we're still a decade away from oil demand peaking overall. That's not to say it's going to rise dramatically between now and then, but we're probably not going to see the top of this market from a demand perspective for maybe another 10 years at this point. So from a demand perspective, Growth may moderate from here, but it will still be trending upwards for a while to come. And we need to be 
understanding of the reality that we aren't consuming less oil at this point, even though there's many initiatives underway to try and make the economy more energy efficient, for sure. But what is happening and what can change the shape of that future is the increased consumption of natural gas, the increased consumption of LNG, frankly, the increased consumption of coal, which is also happening out there, which is not a good story from a decarbonization perspective. And then the continued investments around hydrogen, ammonia, and alternative energy solutions. One thing we've talked about a lot here at APEC this week is that technological advances need to happen in renewable energy for the shape of oil demand to change dramatically and even for it to actually peak in 2035. The key part that's missing right now is technology, which is a byword for affordable energy. Right? We talked a lot in APEC this year about the trilemma in the energy space, which of course is now pretty well understood by most policymakers, most people who take an interest, you know, you've got affordability, you've got security of supply, and you've got ultimately sustainability as well. Now, the path to sustainability is not clear because the technology isn't really in place to meet the other two criteria, either secure supply or affordable supply. So the focus of the conversation, sure, there's a big policy discussion around it. There's certainly a big funding discussion around it. But what's needed is a technology breakthrough like the one that took U.S. crude production from 5 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. That was impossible 20 years ago. And now it's a reality and production is increasing, right? The same kind of technology disruption event has to happen in clean energy. That's a great point, a great analogy as well, because if you think about it, transitions that have happened in the past have all been, the economic case has been unequivocal from wood to coal and to coal to oil. Yeah. This one, it seems to be very different in the sense that we're trying to make it happen as well because we know how important it is. Yeah. But at the same time, the technology is not quite there. Yeah. Whoever cracks the conundrum of producing hydrogen ammonia at a cost equivalent basis to gas and LNG will become the next BP, the next Exxon, the next Shell. It's whoever does it. Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. That's great. Thank you. And thanks for listening. To find out more, please check out Petroleum Economist, our sister publications, Hydro Economist and Carbon Economist, where you can find out a lot about hydrogen infrastructure, news, insight and CCUS on the carbon side. Thanks for listening.